a fictional cartoon character, Homer Simpson, an unlikely theologian. Just give me a moment if you've already checked out because I said Homer Simpson. Uh, He made a keen observation about Jesus after reading the Bible. He said, everyone in this book is a mess except this one guy. Homer Simpson is right, right? Uh, He's not the only famous person to comment on Jesus. Thomas Jefferson said, Jesus did not mean to impose himself on mankind as the son of God. Hmm. Fidel Castro, the communist former leader of Cuba said, I never saw a contradiction between the ideas that sustain me and the ideas of that symbol, of that extraordinary figure, Jesus Christ. Rollo May, an American psychologist, said, Christ is the therapist for all humanity. Novelist and historian H.G. Wells said, I'm a historian, I'm not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. Now, we could go on and on. I'm sure you can add some ideas that you've heard about who Jesus is. And this morning, we're starting our brand new sermon series through the Gospel of John. All 21 chapters. This will take us, Lord willing, all the way through June of 2020. That's a long sermon series, by the way. Now, you may think, why spend so much time working through the Gospel of John? When all is said and done, this will mean... Lord willing, around 33 sermons, about 25 plus hours of preaching and teaching. On top of that, more hours in our gospel communities discussing the text. So why would we spend so much time in this book? And to answer that question, I'll I'll read you a statement that may be familiar with you, that you may be familiar with. It's our vision statement as a church, and it goes like this. It's on the screen. Here's what we say. Our big dream is to saturate Waltham with the gospel until everyone delights in the truth, goodness, and beauty of Jesus. That's why our church is here. Or to put it another way, we're here to help people answer the question, who is the real Jesus? We want you to know that. In a world where everyone has fashioned their own idea of who Jesus is, we want to go back to the source And discover for ourselves who Jesus says he is. Who he really is. And what's so interesting, I didn't notice this till the last couple weeks, but what's interesting about our vision statement is it's not very original. And just in case you're wondering, we're not very original here as a church. We like copying the Bible and Jesus. (laughs) We're not trying to be original. In fact, when we look at our passage this morning, these two short verses... We see that in a different way, our vision statement for for Seven Mile Road and for Waltham is the same as John's vision statement for his gospel. Listen to what he says. We just read it. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Here's his purpose. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What did John long for? He longed for his readers to know the real Jesus. He wanted them to be saturated with the goodness, truth, and beauty of Christ. He wanted readers not to look around them and form uh, opinions based on what the world says, but look at the truth and see that real life is found in the person and work of Christ. 
right? That's why we're digging into this book because John's vision in writing this gospel is aligned with, our, with God's vision for our church, God's vision for your life, and God's vision for our city. All we did was put Waltham on it, right? So what we're doing this morning, instead of starting with chapter one, we're taking a, a big picture look at the gospel of John. So this is an overview sermon. So pray for me. I'm trying to preach the entire book of John in a short amount of time, especially because it's hot, right? So we're using this text at the end of the book where John takes, a, takes sort of a step out of his writing and speaks directly to the reader and says, here's, how I've, I've, here's why I've written this, right? And so we're trying to answer this morning, who is the real Jesus? And we're going to do this in the form of three questions from this text. First, we're going to ask, what did Jesus do? Okay, we'll look at the work of Christ. Second, we'll ask, what did Jesus say about himself, looking at the identity of Christ? And third, we're going to ask, how should we respond? Right? How, how do we seek to apply these truths to our own hearts and lives? But before we do that, as we start this book, some background on John, the apostle, is going to be helpful for us. John, uh, not John the Baptist, um, but John the apostle, one of the 12 disciples, wrote this book. He was a Jewish follower of Jesus. He was one of the 12, one of the sons of Zebedee, along with his brother James. Okay? Now, James and John were likely first cousins of Jesus, their mother Salome likely being Mary, the mother of Jesus' sister, which means that Jesus has two cousins named John, which is confusing, okay? But this would explain John's closeness to Jesus. He, along with James and Peter, were a part of this inner circle of disciples, if you read through the Gospels. Jesus would often step away from the 12, but he would grab John, James, and Peter and bring them with him. Right? At the cross, as Jesus is dying, Jesus looks at John, who is there, and entrusts his mother Mary to John's care. Right? Emphasizes the closeness of their relationship. Some would say that John was Jesus' best friend. Okay? This is someone very close to him. And his name isn't given in this entire gospel. Instead, he identifies himself four times in chapter 13, chapter 19, and twice in chapter 21, as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so this, this helps us to see the unique perspective from which John is writing, doesn't it? Because if you look at your Bible, the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. Synoptic means the same seeing. So, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke are writing really from the same perspective. They're telling a lot of the same stories, John is different. It's unique. He, he, he leaves out things that the synoptic gospels includes, and he includes things that, that they leave out. You could say he wrote it later. You could say he's filling in the gaps. He's got a very unique purpose in the stories that he tells. Okay? So to give you some examples, John doesn't record, surprisingly, the virgin birth of Jesus. He doesn't record the baptism of Jesus or his temptation or his transfiguration or him ascending into heaven. But he does record the first miracle at the wedding in Cana where he turns water into wine. He records the story of Nicodemus coming to him by night, wondering who Jesus really is. He records the story of the, the Samaritan woman at the well. The synoptics don't have any of those, though they do share some similarities as well. They all tell about John the Baptist. They all tell about uh, the miracle of feeding the 5,000, Jesus calming the storm, 
and his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and of course, his death and resurrection. So what John is doing is he's writing this gospel as both a a theologian and a pastor. He wrote his gospel later than the synoptics, and during this time in the early church, false views of Jesus had already arisen. Don't think we're original, because there's all sorts of crazy ideas of who Jesus was. And John, as a pastor, as a theologian, he's engaging these, and he's putting this gospel to say, no, 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 I want you to understand with your mind who the real Jesus is. But he's also writing as a pastor. He loves the church. He he wants the truth of Jesus to move from believers' heads, just as this sort of concept, into their affections of their hearts and out into their hands. He wants the truth about Jesus to lead us to worshipful and holy living. So he zeroes in on two things, the work of Christ and the identity of Christ. That's what he's focusing on. That's what these verses tell us this morning. And so let's consider this question with John, who is the real Jesus? And the first thing to observe in our passage this morning is that John shows us the work of Christ. He shows us the work of Christ. What did Jesus do? John tells us that Jesus did many works, verse 30 but he specifically calls them signs. He doesn't call them works. Jesus did many other signs that were not written in this book. Now, what's a sign? A sign is an object or an event that points to something else, right? As you came in this morning, you saw directional signs. Hey, Seven Mile Road is down here. You can park here in the library or you can park on the street, right? They pointed you to something else. If you've lived in the Boston area uh, for a while, you know that some parking signs are like uh, foreign language, right? It's like you can only park here on the third Thursday of the seventh month from 2 to 4 a.m., right? Which means you're getting, a, that sign is pointing you to the fact that you're getting a ticket, right? Likewise, but with a lot more clarity, Jesus, or it gives us these signs, and John says these miraculous works of Christ are, are directional signs that point us to the reality of who Jesus is, John says, these signs were numerous. In fact, the last verse in the book says, if we wrote down everything Jesus did, I suppose there wouldn't be enough books in the world to capture them. So he's, he's very specific in the signs that he includes. And he includes seven major signs of Jesus' ministry. Now, if you look at the book as a whole, you've got 21 chapters and the outline of John is really simple. Chapters one through 11 focus on Jesus' public ministry, the signs and sayings of Jesus. Then chapters 12 through 21 focus on Jesus' private teaching to his disciples as he's about to leave, and then his death and resurrection. And these signs are found in those first 11 chapters of the book. Now, we will expound these as we walk through, but let me just read them to you. Some of you will be familiar with these, but Jesus turns water into wine in John chapter 2. He heals the royal official son in John chapter 4. He heals a disabled man in John chapter 5. He miraculously feeds 5,000 people with a few loaves of bread and fish, a few fish in John chapter 6. He walks on water in John chapter 6. He gives sight to a man born blind in John chapter 9. And all of these miracles culminate in this greatest sign in John chapter 11 where Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. Now, these signs aren't merely tricks to impress the crowds, right? Jesus wasn't a sort of first century Harry Houdini. 
These are miracles that act as signposts pointing to the identity of Jesus. What's happening in these miracles is the heavenly kingdom is breaking into our world. Now you may wonder, okay, Kevin, miracles, really? Did, did this stuff actually happen? Okay. And it's interesting to note, I'd say to that, that as you read throughout God's, John's gospel, even the most violent, avid enemies of Jesus, those who would have every reason to discredit Jesus, they do not deny the miracles of Jesus. They can't. Even the skeptics who, who aren't really sure, they really want to know, even they don't deny the miracles of Jesus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the middle of the night because he, he doesn't want people to know he's, he's, he's trying to figure this out. And he tells Jesus in John 3, 2, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Or listen to the enemies, those who would have, they've been, they would have benefited greatly from exposing Jesus as a fraud. Listen to what they say in John 11. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. And if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. They thought Jesus was a heretic. They completely rejected him, but they did not. They could not ignore the miracles of Jesus. Right? And I would say, just as a side note, I was just reminded of this talking to someone at the back table. If you say, well, wait a second, I, but you're reading the Bible. You're making arguments about the Bible from the Bible. I would say, yes, absolutely. And so I'd point you, if that's a question for you, we have a great book, a little white book at the back called Why Trust the Bible. And it's free. So if that's something you wrestle with, please grab that today. It's a short, quick read, but it does a great job at showing you how we can know what we have in our hands today is what was written and is what was seen, okay? So I'd point you to that. Now, again, like I said, we'll dig deeper into each of these over the coming months, these, these signs. But I just want to reflect on four things that these signs point us to, okay? These are on the screen as well. First, the signs of Jesus tell us that the kingdom of God is at hand, right? Kingdom of God is at hand. Heaven has come to earth in Jesus. So should it, should it really surprise us that Jesus, who is from heaven, does heavenly things? Heaven's breaking in at the arrival of Christ, B.B. Warfield, a theologian, says this, when our Lord came down to earth, he drew heaven with him. The signs which accompanied his ministry were but the trailing clouds of glory which he brought from heaven, which is his home, right? Number two, the signs of Jesus are, are an act of defiance against evil. My kids were at the park this week playing and there was another group of kids there and um, one of the kids said something very hurtful to one of my sons. It really upset him, bothered him the whole day. And I wasn't there. He came back and, and told me about it. And immediately my fatherly instinct kicked in and I, I comforted him. That was my first thought, comfort him. But my second thought was, those boys need a talking to, right? And I, I really mean talking to. I'm not like, I, want, I didn't want to rough him up or anything, right? But, but why is that my instinct? Because he's my son, and I, I love him, and what harms him harms me. And I want to stand in the way of anything that harms those whom I love, right? Jesus, in the same way, but in a more extreme way, is looking Satan in the face and saying, listen, your days are numbered. Evil is not going to prevail 
in my kingdom anymore. Satan's sin and death are not going to continue to rule. And these signposts, these miracles are saying, listen, your days are numbered. Evil will come to an end. Almost like Gandalf, let me nerd out for a moment, right? When he's about to defeat Balrog, what does he say on that bridge? What does he say? Does anyone remember? You shall not pass. He says, go back to the darkness from which you came. I love that. I watched it last night. Got me pumped up for this morning, right? Jesus is saying, the arrival of Jesus is God's way of saying, Satan, sin, and death will not prevail anymore. The king is coming back, and he's not going to put up with it. Third, the signs of Jesus give us a glimpse of what's to come. Do you ever yearn for the miraculous in your own life? Of course you do. You ever look at your life or the lives of those you love and you say, God, I want sickness to end. I want provision to be abundant and not be an issue for people. See, these miracles point to a future day when those little glimpses will become the reality. Jesus is saying, I'm, not only am I here now, but I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna usher in the new heavens and the new earth and there will be no more blindness to heal. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more Satan, sin, or death. And I will be victorious. That's what the first wedding at Cana is about when Jesus turns water into wine at a wedding. Why does John include that? Because the Bible says, listen, there is coming in the end a a wedding banquet, a feast, when Jesus will be brought together with his people, the church. And there will be endless provision and blessing, which is what wine represents, right? Right? Jesus is giving us a glimpse of what's to come. And then fourth, the signs of Jesus tell us that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the above, right? So how is the kingdom coming? It comes through Christ. How is evil defeated? Through Jesus. How is the the future gonna be restored? Through Jesus. All of these signs point us to the identity of Christ. Just as the sign outside says park here, The seven signs of Jesus in John say, this one is the heaven-sent glorious king. And that leads us to number two, the identity of Christ. So that first is the work of Christ. Now we see the identity of Christ. We're asking, who is Jesus? So John goes on to tell us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And John gives two titles here for Jesus, Christ and Son of God. This word Christ in the Greek means Messiah, And just like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John presents Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises concerning this anointed coming one who will deliver God's people, right? There was this expectation of the Jews at the time of Jesus' arrival. In John 1.41, when Andrew follows Jesus, the first thing he does is he runs and tells his brother Simon, and here's what he says. He says, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ means the one who's anointed by God, who will lead God's people to freedom. Probably the most popular Old Testament passage about this, we hear a lot at Christmas time, is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, telling of this coming Messiah. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government... And of peace, there will be no end 
on the throne of David and over the kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What John is saying is, yes, those prophecies from 700 years ago, they're talking about him. They're talking about Jesus. Then John uses another title. He calls Jesus the Son of God, right? And this emphasizes the unique nature of Jesus' relationship with God the Father. More than that, this is a declaration of the divinity of Jesus, right? When Nathanael meets Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 49, he's surprised that Jesus has this intimate knowledge of his thoughts and where he was located. And his response is, Rabbi, which means teacher, you are the son of God. He's not saying you're lesser than God. He's saying you are the divine son of God. So I have three sons, Hudson, Aiden, and Haddon. You can call them sons of Kevin, right? That'd be weird, but you could call them that. That'd be true. The Bible elsewhere uses the phrase sons of God to refer just generally to the children of God, those of us who believe in him. But that's not what John is saying here. In fact, John exclusively uses this phrase to refer to the divinity of Jesus. He's saying he's, a, a, he's equal with God. He's not saying that Jesus is secondary to God. He's saying that he is of the very essence of God, Okay? There's a lot of debate around that, but it's just clear when we look at Jesus and what he says about himself. We'll see this next week as well. The very first verse in the Gospel of John is, in the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. No way around it. Not only that, uh, Jesus makes these statements so much, that's what gets him in trouble in his ministry. Listen to what he says in John chapter 5. Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. His enemies knew exactly what he was saying. John chapter 10, verse 30. I and the father are one. And here's the response. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Right? You might say, well, that escalated quickly. <laughs> but they're saying, you're, you're a heretic because you're calling yourself God. Jesus also records, or John also records seven statements of Jesus. So John loves the number seven. He gives seven signs in those first 11 chapters, but he, then he gives seven statements. These are called the I am statements. And they're metaphors that Jesus uses to show his identity as the son of God. These are on the screen. Let's just read through these real quick. In John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. John 10, 7, uh, verse 7, I am the door of the sheep. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 15, 5, I am the vine. Now you may say, okay, what, well, Jesus thought really highly of himself. Right? He had an ego problem. No, that, that's not what he was saying. In fact, when you realize the Old Testament background of this phrase, I am, what Jesus is saying here becomes even more shocking. Because the Jewish mind would have immediately recalled Exodus chapter 3, where God appears in the form of a burning bush to Moses and tells him he's going to go deliver God's people. And Moses says, okay, God, well, they're going to ask me 
What's the name of the God who sent me? And here's, here's God's response. He says, I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent you. You say, what kind of name is that? You say, exactly. God doesn't have a name like us. He just is. That word's translated for us into Yahweh or, or Jehovah, right? That is the name of God. So when Jesus comes along and says in John 8, 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was I am, he is making an undeniable declaration that Jesus is God. Remember what Thomas Jefferson said? Quote, Jesus did not mean to impose himself on mankind as the son of God. Okay, so to come to that conclusion, and Thomas Jefferson was a very smart man, to come to that conclusion is to blatantly ignore the plain reading of God's word. You, you might as well just cut out the pieces that you don't like, which is exactly what Thomas Jefferson did. Google Jefferson Bible. He just took a Sharpie. They didn't have Sharpies back then. Whatever he took. And just, there, I fixed the Bible in his mind. The problem is that's, Jesus doesn't give us that option, does he? Jesus is not some enlightened New Age monk. He's not a, a politician. He's not a motivational speaker. He's not just some moral teacher with some good advice to help us get through life. He came declaring, I am God. I am. C.S. Lewis, who personally wrestled with this as a former atheist, in his book, Mere Christianity, he shows us how it's just intellectually dishonest to try and claim that Jesus was just a good moral guy. Now, this is a really long quote, but it is so good. So bear with me. Listen to what he says. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. It's a great point, isn't it? He's either a liar, he's either a lunatic, or he's Lord. But don't try and make him into something that just benefits your own living. The ultimate question for us to answer this morning is, is this. After examining, and I mean this morning, I mean on your own in the scriptures, and I mean over the next 33 weeks, after examining the work and identity of Jesus, how will we, we respond? How are we going to respond? That leads to our third and final point. So we've seen the work of Christ, we've seen the identity of Christ, and now we'll consider the response to Christ. John's explicit in his purpose here. I love it. This is the only time he talks individually to the reader. He's an evangelist. And he's, he, he's not ashamed of it at all. He wants you and me to believe. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. 
And one of the reasons John is so passionate about this is because he's personally experienced the abundant life that's found in Jesus. We don't hear a lot about John from his gospel, but when we piece together what we know from his gospel, from the other gospels and his own writings, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Revelation, we learn some interesting things about John, including his personal flaws. For example, Jesus nicknamed John and his brother. The nickname he gave them was the Sons of Thunder. Okay? Now, it wasn't because that was like the name of their metal band. There was a reason he called them that. What is thunder? It's loud and it makes you want to run, right? That was John's personality. So much so that that was their reputation. Even Jesus said, hey guys, you're a little intense. I'm calling you the sons of thunder. Give you an example. We see this in Luke chapter nine. When a Samaritan village rejects Jesus, Samaritans and Jews were at odds with each other. Jesus just moves on with his disciples. Okay, they rejected me. We're going to move on to the next town. As they're leaving, Luke 9.54 says this. And when the disciples, when his disciples, James and John, saw it, that they rejected him, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Oh, chill out, dudes. We can't just be calling down fire on everybody who rejects Jesus. That was their first inclination. They, they knew the story of Elijah where something similar happened. And they said, oh, these Samaritans who are lesser than us Jews, they're going to reject Jesus. All right, here's how we deal with this. When evangelism doesn't go right, God, just kill them all. That's their attitude. That's an overreaction. They're also known not just for their sort of brash, unrighteous anger, and short temper. They're known for selfish and misdirected ambition. The other story we get about James and John is in Matthew 20, where they're too afraid to go to Jesus himself, so they get their mom. You know when you get your mom to do something for you because you're like embarrassed? They get their mom, Jesus' aunt, Salome, and they say, go, can you go talk to Jesus and tell him like, we're better than these other disciples. They're kind of chumps. So when he gets into his kingdom, we want to sit on either side. We should be number one and two. We want to be your right and left-hand man. And Jesus says, my goodness, you guys don't know what you're asking. The kingdom of God is not about the pursuit of selfish ambition, but selfless sacrifice. You don't know what I'm going to have to go through to enter the kingdom. That was John's reputation. But something happened to John. This is so encouraging to me. I consider myself at times a son of thunder, right? Jesus happened to John. And by the time he sits down as an elderly disciple, likely outlived all the other apostles, a statesman in the church, as he times to, at the time he comes to sit down and write his gospel, he's tenderhearted, he's patient, he's kind. And the early church had a nickname for John, and it wasn't Son of Thunder, it was the Apostle of Love. He talks more about Christian love than any other writer in the New Testament. Now, each of us this morning, we have nicknames, right, that reveal our misplaced identity. For John, it was a son of thunder. For for you, it could be a son or daughter of fear. You're saying, that's my identity, or a son or daughter of worry or anxiety or of misery or of lust, or whatever it is, idolatry, sex, career, whatever that blank is, 
That's where you, you see your identity. And the gospel comes along and says, it doesn't have to be that way. Look at the life that Jesus offers. See, the Bible uses a word to describe whatever that blank is, son or daughter of. It's sin. It's rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created and not being or doing what he requires in his law. But the gospel says your identity can change. The gospel said to John, Jesus said to John, I'm going to change you. So whether you're new to following Jesus or you've been walking with him for a while or you're just exploring Christianity, these two verses, it's as if John is saying, listen, I want you to experience what I've experienced. Listen to what John MacArthur says of John. He says, John aged well. Under the control of the Holy Spirit, all his liabilities were exchanged for assets. Compare the young disciple with the aged patriarch and you'll see that as he matured, his areas of greatest weakness all developed into his greatest strengths. He's an example of what should happen to us as we grow in Christ, allowing the Lord's strength to be made perfect in our weakness. See, John's saying, listen, Jesus took my liabilities and he turned them into assets. What was once unrighteous anger and zeal has been transformed into holy boldness. What was once selfish ambition has been transformed into godly ambition and patience and love. While I deserve death, Jesus has given me abundant life and I want you to have it too. That's why he's writing this book. He's saying, listen, I'm here to tell you that sons and daughters of whatever, sin, can become transformed sons and daughters of God through the ultimate son of God, Jesus Christ. It's the message of John. And friends, there are only two responses to this. Belief that leads to life or unbelief that leads to death. John is so helpful. It has some of the clearest gospel summaries in all of the Bible. Jesus puts it plainly, for example, in John 3.18 when he says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. How will we respond? See, to believe in Jesus is not merely to believe in his existence or even to believe that he accomplished great things or performed great signs. To believe in Jesus means to receive him and to fully rely upon him as Lord and King and Savior. When you walked in this room this morning, my guess is that you didn't have a problem believing in the existence of chairs. If we have any chair atheists in here, I just, I can't help you. There's a chair right there, right? You believed in chairs, but the moment it was time to start, the moment you came in, what did you do? You sat down in the chair. And at that moment, your sort of theoretical belief in the existence of chairs was expressed in the act of reliance upon the chair. That's what faith is. That's what belief is. You're saying this chair will hold me. True belief is reliance upon Christ to save you from your sins and give you Life, abundant life. And how does Jesus give us life? We mentioned seven works of Jesus already, but it would be a waste of time this morning. Really, every sermon would be a waste of time if we don't mention the greatest work of Christ, which is his work on the cross. 
All those signs were merely preludes to the ultimate display of Christ's glory on the cross. The greatest work, the greatest display of his work and identity is that he laid down his life for sinners like you and me. And when Jesus did that, he did so as the only sinless one. It blows my mind that Homer Simpson, just after a cursory reading of the Bible, gets it. Everybody in this book is a mess except this one guy. Yes, you're right. And because he was the sinless one, he was able to pay the price for our sin. He was condemned so that we would be accepted. He gave his life, laid it down so we could have new life. We're going to sing this in a moment, one of my favorite modern hymns, In Christ Alone. We'll sing, on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Some people take that verse out. I'm a worship leader, so I listen to a lot of worship. Some people take the, the wrath part. Oh, that sounds like too much. Friends, that's the gospel. You and I deserve just judgment because of our sin. And if that sounds too harsh, remember that God is a holy God. And if that sounds too harsh, remember that not only did God say you are judged, he also said, I have made a way for that judgment to be removed because I love you. So on the cross as Jesus died, he satisfied the wrath of God. He paid our debt in full, but he didn't stay dead. The song goes on, up from the grave, he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. How does Jesus give us life? By laying down his. And so we're given a choice. We can either believe in Jesus and have him willingly absorb our wrath and condemnation so that it's removed. Or we can reject Jesus and absorb, absorb God's judgment ourselves. But friends, the life that Jesus offers is even more than this. He's not just saying you don't have to go to hell. He's not just saying you don't get judgment. He's saying, I am giving you abundant life. Listen to what else he gives. There's so many verses here, but we'll just walk through a few. Jesus offers eternal life. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. He offers abundant life today. Not like, hey, wait till you die to get this, but today. John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. See, Jesus can give us the fullness of life and joy because his life was one of fullness and joy. Not only that, he offers a life of loving obedience. John 15, verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that someone laid down his life for his friends. Jesus is saying the same love which I have loved you with is yours to love others with. That's what life means in Jesus. So, as we look at the work of Christ and the identity of Christ, both today and as we walk through this gospel, we see that Jesus, the real Jesus is God the Son. He's come to give life to those who believe by laying down his own life for us. These things are written so that you and I may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
and that by believing, we may have life in his name. So for those of you who are here, and, and you may say, Kevin, this, I, I'm, I'm trekking with you, but I already believe. Well, let me just say, maybe you've lost the fullness of joy that comes with following Jesus. Maybe you've lost the abundance of life that flows out of believing in Jesus. You know the real Jesus, but you've grown distant from him. And to you, John says, come. Come this morning as as we journey through this gospel and rediscover once again the abundant life that's found in Christ. He'll never, ever turn you away when you come. So believe and live. Or maybe you're here and you say, listen, I want to believe but I have too much mess in my life. I've, I've got to clean that up first. Or you say, I, I just don't have it all figured out yet. Okay, God is patient. But friend, listen, the reason Jesus came is to enter into that mess of your life. He knows you can't clean up your mess and he loves you anyways. That's the good news of the gospel. So much so that he took the mess of our lives on his shoulders on the cross. So let me just say, if you wait till you clean up your life to come to Jesus, you will never come to Jesus because you cannot clean up your life. If you wait till you figure it all out, you will never come. None of us have it figured out. I've got two Bible degrees and I, have, I don't have it figured out. But some of us know the one who does have it all figured out. And we're pointing each other to him. We know the one who does. So wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever you've done, the gracious offer of Jesus this morning is given. Come today, believe and live.